The brothers wish. The brothers wish, brothers wish. The brothers wish. The brothers. You're now listening to Greg. It's the brothers wish. Hey everybody, this is Greg with the brothers wish, number 135. Come to you from the motherland. Today we have two very special guests. One who uh, is working on his pirate mustache right now, Nick Carolina. Oh, I thought you meant Mike. <laughs> uh, you could almost twirl it at the ends, bud. So you're uh, you're getting close. If only we could it. hear it, the ASMR of you twirling. <laughs> yeah, I've got uh, Chris Bond, so it's canceling out that stuff. Oh, lame. All right. We also have Mikey from Chicagoland. Uh, tried thinking something else and I couldn't, so I'll just do the, something different words in the same cadence. That's uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's your new uh, hey, how's it going? It's, I tried to think of something different. That's what you said last time. So <laughs> we've got uh, our new normal. We're 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 right there in routine. Excellent. All right, let's do the uh, let's do the first thing, which is our new patrons. We actually have two this go around, and their names are uh, pretty foolproof. I'm thinking I'm not going to screw this up. And so if you go to patreon.com forward slash your brothers with throw us a couple of bones, you get access to our patron only slack as well as, you know, you're just kind of generally supporting the podcast. Uh, supporting the podcast is less interesting than joining the slack though. So I would definitely do it for that. But this go around, we have Mark Rowe. Is that how you'd say that? And David Flory, sure. I believe. Tried shouting them out in the, uh, in the slack channel itself, but they're, uh, shy lurkers, so we haven't seen them actually say anything yet, but I know they're both in there, so hopefully we uh, we can uh, force those guys to uh, become one of us soon. One of us. All right. <laughs> so let's do some of our sponsorship stuff. I will do uh, tower coverage today. Uh, tower coverage is your RF propagation system to empower your network. Real-time data metrics enable your coverage area, reach your customer base, and... And more. The industry's best RF propagation mapping system allows website integration for customer signup and pre-qualification. Use this data to scientifically plan network expansion and help your WIS succeed. Get a free trial today at towercoverage.com. We still need to get Denny on here and uh, talk to him about tower coverage. I know he wanted to, to chat with us, so we should it's, do that um, soon. It, uh, for those wondering what the... The little pause was there in the middle of Greg's uh, <laughs> uh, speech. Um, so we have the text for all these sponsor notices and whatnot in our uh, Google Sheets that we use to track all the things we're talking about in the you know supporting documentation and whatnot. And uh, that's just at the end of the row. Um, and so he probably <laughs> had to scroll a little bit to see what the next I words did. were. I had to scroll it. I accidentally pasted it in there too far to the right. It needed to be a little bit more to the left. That's my bad. It, um, but uh, for those interested in knowing uh, what's in our notes, uh, that is one of the benefits of uh, of the Patreons. It, uh, yeah. Nobody cares about that. It's all the same stuff we talk about anyway. <laughs> well, well it, um, as we were talking, trying to figure out what we were going to talk about this show... Um, you know, we're like, well, you know, worst case, we only talked about half the things we put in the notes for the last show, so there actually is a bunch more stuff we don't ever get to for those that uh, want to poke around. Yeah, yeah, we always have a little extra fodder. All right, Mikey, which uh, which sponsor are you going to read for us? 
Um, I will go with uh, Sonar. Brought to you by Sonar, a scalable, intuitive, and comprehensive ISP billing and operational operational support system. Learn more at Sonar.software. Booyah. So that leaves QuickBit. So QuickBit is an indoor and outdoor 60 gigahertz kit that is set it and forget it simple. Apparently it's got a crazy feature set for the price. Uh, it's got an API, deployment tools, uh, pretty solid distance, and like a lot of the products, it's up to about eight clients per hub. You can check them out at quickbit.com, K-W-I-K-B-I-T.com. It, uh, it actually saw some advertising from them recently. I'm oh, not really? sure if they're going to be at the Whisper Show or, or what, but I saw them advertising something. It looks like they've um, updated the website a bit, and they have a buy button now. Is the store actually rocking and rolling? Let me. A lot of people have been interested in getting quotes and stuff from them recently. They do. So the store is actually live. I'm in there right now. Add to cart. Check out. All right. Yeah. So the store is actually operational. So quickbit.com. The store is there. No longer do you have to actually contact another human being. You could just order right off the website. So incredible! Are you antisocial people just like me? Go for it. Get in there. <laughs> it, it, um, I absolutely hate it when I have to like call somebody for like, oh, I need to buy one of these. Like, I know exactly what I want. Don't make me go through all those steps of having a phone call, playing phone tag, doing all this, getting a quote. Just let me buy the darn thing. Fair enough. Sometimes though, you can actually get a discount if you give them a give them a holler. You start talking to them. You know they'll uh, they'll knock a couple points off. So sometimes it uh, it's worth wasting a little bit of extra time. I'm not saying waste because it's not necessarily a waste of time if you get a discount. You know, utilizing your time more wisely, perhaps. So get in there. Let's check it out. All right, you guys ready to jump into the uh, the stuff of the things now that we have. Nick here, I had some questions saved up for him from last time. <laughs> he sounds excited about it. Questions, huh? <laughs> so, this has been around the block for a little while, and we've heard tale of it, <clears throat> but I haven't seen anybody dive in with both feet with as much fervor as you, so I thought you would probably be at a good place to pick your brain a little bit about TR-069. Okay, so what what do you know about the technical review 069, Greg? Well, for one, I didn't realize that TR stood for technical review. So. <laughs> or technical report. Technical, okay, well, report. Oh, report. so you were testing me. Oh, I was testing you. Yeah. See, I was already honest about it. I already, I'll be right up front and say I didn't actually. Uh, I don't really know that much about it. From my understanding, and I'm sure this is like a kindergarten version, and I'm probably getting some pieces wrong, it's a method for... Um, I guess in mass, I, I think, I want to say, isn't this something that like DSL providers and like cable modem providers use a lot of times where they'll, you take like kind of a blank piece of kit, you throw it out there and then it will auto provision the gear. Is that kind of the, is that the dream? Yeah, I'm, I'm just getting into uh, TR-069 and looking at packet captures and stuff. So definitely as uh, the weeks go on, I'm going to have a lot more information, but Basically, it is a, uh, a carrier-grade like management protocol, and uh, I didn't realize this, but apparently there's there's like um, IP phones and a bunch of different IoT type devices. Um, I have a hard time finding any actual vendors and documentation on it, but apparently there's a large class of devices that support this. 
and it is basically a uh, remote management and provisioning um, uh, I guess you could call it a standard so basically there's um, a whole bunch of write-ups on the protocol itself and how the communication works and it's up to the vendors to um, have it be compliant with a ACS which is like an access control system 4TR069 uh, Microtik has really good documentation on their implementation of the client, um, but it's I've, I just started diving into it. I think it's really interesting. Um, so one of the important parts about the protocol is that everything communication-wise is like session-wise, I should say, is initiated by the client, the CPE, the remote device. Uh, so this these remote devices can basically ping the provisioning server. And there's some bi-directional communication that happens, and it's all over. Um, usually, you would you would set up TLS, and it's over HTTPS. So there's no like proprietary protocol you have to use. It's just basically XML APIs back and forth between server and client. Uh, but it is it is very heavily used uh, in like Doxus cable systems. Uh, a lot of the companies like Comcast and um, the other big carriers. They have a lot of uh, custom-made um, modem router combos that they've been deploying, and a lot of those have TR069 embedded in them to allow them to have uh, full management and control over all the devices they have deployed. So it's picking up quite a bit of steam in the carrier space because um, it allows you to read and write information. It allows you to do firmware updates, push like default configurations. You kind of have full, full access to everything that's being managed on the TRO69 side. You said remote management, so that makes me think um, like a little bit of monitoring. Do people use it for like diagnostics and stuff like that? Uh, well, it, it completely depends on uh, how much the clients have um, implemented. There's a couple other uh, more specific um, technical report pieces that are more to do with monitoring and uh, collecting like metadata. This is mostly um, like back and forth XML for configuration and reading simple parameters. Um, I think some vendors have things where you could do like trace routes or ping tests and stuff like that. Um, maybe even some wireless scans, depending on the device support. Um, hmm. But the support for the feature set isn't necessarily the same across all the different products out there. So it's kind of kind of depends on what you're trying to manage. <clears throat> So the folks listening here, why is this important to them? It's like, how how are you using it that would be, like, interesting? <clears throat> well, the way that I want to use it is to mass manage uh, in-home routers. Um, and be, so if you have, you know, you know, a few dozen, maybe even, uh, like, low hundreds of devices, it's probably not too bad to manage those with some scripting or um, configuration pushing. But once you get into the thousands of devices, it gets a little... Uh, more difficult as far as like scaling and security and uh, especially if you've got uh, networks that span large areas and maybe you need to uh, kind of put some stuff out in the cloud so with a lot of solutions you'd kind of need direct IP access which would probably require like VPNs and all kinds of interesting stuff if you need to cloud host it but with like a TR069 type system um, the CPEs can ping out even if they don't have a public IP if, as long as they're natted out to the internet they can ping the server and they can have that communication back and forth 
um, over you know TLS encryption with HTTPS, so it's secure. Um, and there's a lot of different uh, mechanisms in the protocol for security, such as um, provisionable username and passwords to even communicate with the server. Um, there's a lot of stuff in like the headers you can use to uh, track requests between the clients so that people can't really spoof or try to mess with the payload. And also, um, the server itself cannot initiate a session with the client. The only thing it can do is kind of ping the client and ask it to start a new session. Um, so there's, there's a lot of security type stuff baked in, which makes a lot of sense because this is kind of for the carrier space at scale. So you wouldn't want this thing to be um, compromisable. So, so by design, a lot of the mechanisms in place are secure. So if your CPE was, uh, say, on a carrier-grade NAT address or RFC 1918, and it pings out, it gets to the server, and then the server can start telling it, hey, do this, do that sort of thing? Yes, basically it makes an inform request, which has like a bunch of information like a serial number, what model it is, um, IP address information. There's also a... Um, if, if you can reach the IP directly, there is a specific URL that the server can ping to get it to initiate a fresh session. Um, so, And there's also a, like a periodic inform field that you can fill out. So you could tell it every 30 seconds, I want you to reach out to the server. Mm. And so it's just kind of like a quick ping with some information. The server can respond with either an empty request to tell it like there's no work that needs to be done or you can have a series of XML responses for data that the server needs or configuration that needs to be changed, whatever you want. Um, so that's basically how the communication works. So if it's behind that, it's gonna um, hit the URL for the TR069 ACS, and then the server's gonna respond with work to do or information it needs or just an empty response every that's time right. it informs. So if you like make a configuration side or a configuration on the ACS side, you only have to theoretically wait maybe like 30 seconds before mm -hmm. the CPE pings realizes it's got some work to do. And then, you know, Bob's your uncle. Yeah. And it's pretty nice because it's not, it's not long running sessions. They're all uh, quick back and forth XML API responses. So you can easily put it behind a load balancer for scale and, and scale it out pretty easily. Cause it's just, you know, HTTP traffic. There's no, long-term running sessions between the server and all of the clients. So uh, you have a lot of flexibility on the back end to kind of scale it and build it up. And it's just gotcha. uh, XML back and forth. It's pretty nice. Yeah, and I would assume um, probably on average, right, your CPE is going to ping out to the server. There's not going to be any work done. So you're probably looking at a total of like 80 milliseconds for that whole communication to happen. And then it tears down, right? And it's gone. Yeah, it just depends on on you know the location and the load on the server, but right. a lot of the, the XML documents are pretty small. It's not it's not very large, so most of the payloads are tiny, and it's a lot of back and forth. So, uh, some so also you can have the client ping the server, the server says it needs work, then the CPE replies with the information that was requested, and then the server can request more information and keep the chain going as long as it needs to until eventually it returns an empty response, and then the client will return an empty response back and then the communication stops. And then it'll wait for the next inform to ping the server again. Yeah, rock and roll. So you were talking about um, lots of different CPEs that can use it. So mm -hmm. I, I have a user of Microtik stuff. And the last time I did 
configurations for an MDU, I was configuring 135 individual units. And that took me a mm -hmm. little while to use uh, net install to get like the default config and stuff on there. Uh, but I guess the dream with this is, so you're still going to have to load some kind of base configuration in each one of these, right? But it'll be, they'll, I mean, they'll all be identical, right? Generic and identical. Yeah. So uh, you, you, st you would also have to install the, uh, the package, the TRO69 client package, for, first of all. Oh. So for each of those, you got to upload and reboot to uh, put the package on there. Or you could use another tool to kind of push that out and have them reboot. Um, but you can provision it using DHCP options. So um, there's a few options you can use where you tell the CPE the ACS URL and the TRO69 package on Microtik will uh, ping that server. I believe you can also pass another parameter in DHCP for like a shared key. Um, apparently it was designed for multiple carriers to kind of share a TRO69 ACS server. And so in the DHCP options, you can put some meta information like what ISP it belongs to so that the ACS has a little bit more intelligence on how to provision that specific device. But um, on Microtik, you can push a default config, like basically net install using this or just have it run an arbitrary script if it's not supported in the TRO69 uh, XML parameters. So yeah, you generally just put the package on there um, either pre-fill the ACS information or pass it through DHCP and then, you know, provision it remotely. That's cool. I mean, when I was, when I was like pre-conversioning or pre-provisioning all of my uh, devices, each one had a unique configuration. So I had to make sure that, uh, you know, the right router got the right sticker. And so I was doing everything in sequence. And I mean, I, I developed the flow to it, but if it was quite literally, you're loading the exact same package on everything. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it would have been a lot easier. Yeah, I could have just lined up 10 of them, plugged them all in, worked for a little while, then look over and then, you know, click the button, then yeah. work for a little while, and then just without having to think. So that would have been nice. Yeah, and something that's kind of compelling about it is um, there's a bunch of life cycles where the CPE will ping the server, regardless of like the, uh, the inform interval that's set, like 30 seconds or a minute. So like when the device first boots up, It'll immediately reach out to the server. Mm. I think after like a uh, package update, there's like a whole bunch of criteria on when in the technical review documentation a device should hit the server. So one reason that that could be compelling is let's say you need to um, update your firewall rules or firmware across four, five, 6,000 devices, however many you're managing. And some of them happen to be offline at the time. Well, um, depending on the software that you use to currently manage stuff, like something more Ansible, um, if it's not online at the time, you're just going to have to rerun it later. But with something like TRO69, uh, as soon as the client comes back online and hits the server, the server can know, like, this one hasn't been updated yet, so now let's start the update. So as long as they come online at some point from you pushing out provisioning or whatever, um, you know that eventually they will all get firmware updated as long as they eventually get back online. You don't have to really... You wouldn't have to keep track of which ones have been done and haven't been done and rerun a playbook or anything like that. Uh, you would have the ability to just kind of do that when it uh, pings the server when it comes back online, which would be pretty pretty nice. Yeah, very nice. So I know when I was doing my mass configuration, uh, what I did was I had uh, a Microtik, like a 326 or something, like, you know, the 24-port POEs, and I had... Uh, Port one set to like VLAN 10, port two was VLAN 
or maybe it was like 11, 12, 13, like each, each, you know, port was a different one up to 10. And then I went, I brought those over a trunk to, um, a VMware server and I had 10 windows VMs yep. all running net install. <laughs> and so they would just boot up and, uh, I had like a window share on the back end with all the different configurations and they all just had that shared drive mapped. And so I was just going, you know, it's like, all right, room, you know, 111, room 112, room 113, just one after another, just pop, pop, pop. And then I uh, told the net install. So it would push the config. It would put the, uh, the correct firmware version on there. I mean, the good thing about that is it makes it the default uh, config so that if somebody holds the button and resets it, it just goes back to my configuration, even though, mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I've made some modifications since that uh, original config went out. It'll still at least come back up online and be uh, manageable. And, and you mentioned Ansible. That's what I'm using to do my configuration updates on all of my stuff was Ansible because I can just tell it to go and it will, like you said, touch all of those. Um, granted, yeah, if one of them was offline, that would be problematic for sure. Uh, so I can definitely see value in that. It's like that with a lot of tooling. <laughs> if it's not online, <laughs> it's not yeah. going to just know, oh, I need to do this as soon as it comes back online. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to be honest, not all of my um, Microtech scripts are idempotent. So mm -hmm. some of them aren't exactly safe to rerun more than once on an existing device. What were you going to say, Mike? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, bud. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, the, well, like, and to me, the nice thing about... Um, TR69 is that it is that you don't have to necessarily all depending on what options because there's a wide range of what is actually supported uh, by each device manufacturer and, mm -hmm. uh, and then there's a wide range of extensions you know TR143 TR124 so on so on that do that add additional functionality beyond what they had originally thought about um, but you can, you can have a single pane of glass for your CSR, which is whatever your ACS is. And it doesn't matter if it's a Microtik or a Comtrend or a Zyzel or a BEC hmm. or whatever device on the other side, the CSR has no clue. It just sees, oh, you know do a ping test, you know, do this, you know, what are the Wi-Fi clients like? What's, they have no idea what's going on. It's just, they have one dashboard mm -hmm. and they're completely isolated from whatever it is. That's, that's actually at the client hardware wise. Um, and when you say so CSR, you're just talking about like somebody in your company that's answering phones, right? Yep. Yep. Just, you know, yeah. you know, your, you know, your help desk, you know, they call up and Hey, Marin, it doesn't work. Then it doesn't matter what's now. I know that Microtik isn't as uh, feature rich in this environment as Comtrend, uh, which is what we use for our DSL modems. Um, but um, but like on the DSL modems, you know, you can see everything. Like you can see how many clients are online, how long they've been online, how much data they've moved, what's their signal quality like. Um, all that stuff as you can see oh well you know in that one dashboard you can see oh it's you know Susie's calling because there's no internet well Susie's iPad isn't connected everything else is you know and you can see all that through this system um, one thing that's important for people that are doing uh, 
you know, CAF two and other you know government funding things is uh, TR one forty three, which will do performance monitoring, um, and with the com trends at least, um, again, it's the you know, manufacturer, or you know, Im- you know, implementation specific, but um, like I remember in, in the demo that I had, I could do an invasive speed test or a non-invasive. You know, being is that. If it was an invasive speed test, it would, it would then cut off all client access. It would, it would kill everybody on all the Ethernet ports. It would kill the Wi-Fi, all those things, and then do a speed test. So you can see, oh well, you know, you're complaining about slow internet, and yeah, I do a speed test, I get one meg, but when I do an intrusive speed test, I get seventy-five megs, which is what you pay for. And hmm. so, therefore, you're using the whole. You know, there's, there's just a wide range of things you can do, and it just depends on what the client has built support for. And it's just whatever the you, same, you know, same protocol. Say, whatever you say, intrusive tested. It always makes me think of whenever I would have a circuit go down, I'd call the carrier, and they would always ask, "Hey, uh, do you mind if we do intrusive testing?" And I'd say, "Yeah, it's hard down. It's like, what are you going to break? Whatever you want to do." Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sure. Like, yeah, it's like it's it it is broken. You can be as intrusive <laughs> as you would like. It, <laughs> no. it, it doesn't work. Uh, he's dead. I think you could do whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can slap him in the face. Feel free. He's not gonna feel it. <laughs> That's uh, dark. Test. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming guys at mortuaries play interesting games. Oh, so they... probably. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta be. You gotta be a little quirky if. Uh... That's what you want for your profession. Like I, the, I have a feeling people who ride people... horses as their personal vehicle. <laughs> I think you feel I know some people people like that. I don't think I don't think you seek that out, do you? I don't think so. You're born with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good times. That's like uh, oh, never mind. I can't make that joke. This is a family <laughs> show. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, let's move right along before I do actually say the oh, joke because I'm laughing them still. Um, and so then in the TR69 space, they're, they're, so, you know, as Nick was saying, you know, you have the client and then you have the ACS. Um, and there are a variety of ACSs out there. There's some open source, there's some commercial. Um, some people um, want to try to make their own. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's things that uh, the ones on the, out of the box don't do. So, what's the yeah. what's the uh, is it like Genie ACS or ACS Genie or something like that? Isn't that <laughs> one of the main ACS. open source? That's one of the biggest open yeah. source ones. But like most of those systems, it's like you, you got to use their pane of glass, and you know what functionality that's baked in there. Like like Genie because it's open source and it's not like a wrapped up commercial product. Uh, there's a lot of flexibility you can do because it has an API. Like you can edit all the config files and you can kind of build the stuff that you want in there. But it's it's not it's not friendly for like a CSR person to use. Gotcha. So the, what I would want TR 069 for is not something that you have to. And it's it's kind of the same philosophy I have for like smart home stuff. Like I don't want to tell it to do stuff. I just want it to know the parameters and do the stuff it's supposed to do. So you know I I want to be able to integrate <clears throat> with Sonar. And I don't want a CSR to have to use a new tool. They just know that if they put this router on this customer 
and a technician goes out and plugs it onto the network, it's going to provision with all the correct information. So I need to be able to hook in um, at the time it, it builds the configuration script to, to check into Sonar and check into whatever other systems we have to build the correct config for that specific customer at the time that the router gets provisioned and then be able to you know onboard it and manage it at scale without somebody logging into like Genie's UI at all. I just want to use it as a tool for automation um, that has all the parameters that I'm specifically looking for. Um, you know, and like with Microtik, you can tell it like if it's not supported in the XML, you could just say run this arbitrary script, and then you could um, at the end of the script, you know, run a webhook to send information back to the server because um, really you only need one uh, endpoint in an app for the um, the what they call it CWMP the communication um, you can have a whole full-fledged web application with other stuff and whatever you want on the same application you would just have like the one URL that it hits for the TR069 piece so um, anything I can't do with TR069 um, I'm just gonna be able to run scripts on the microtick and hit a webhook at the end with information that I need to send it back to the server because the TR069 component is just going to be one piece of you know the management stack gotcha so so like genie is not uh, a management system in the in the sense of like a like a sonar like you were talking about where you know you put your users in there it's doing their billing and all that stuff it's really just the TRO 69 management piece right well I mean out of the box like it'll it'll gather a bunch of information like if you put a micro tick in there um, it'll pull uh, most of the like generic information that all the devices are, will support because in the report there's like a whole list of stuff that the CPE must implement these things and then there's a bunch of stuff that's kind of optional and there's a whole space of stuff that's really up to the vendor so just out of the box it will get a bunch of information the firmware the serial and like display it in the UI um, but some of the things you have to add custom parameters for microtick specifically so it's not like you know, batteries included, but mm. you can do very basic things. You can see how often um, the device checks in, and and a few things like that. But um, outside of that, you have to kind to kind of add and customize the config to do what you need it to do. So you're gonna have to have some glue in there, one way or the other. Mm -hmm. All right. Depending on what you want to do with it, if you just want to do like firmware updates, and maybe some because <clears throat> a lot of the guides and stuff um, people are putting. Um, like provisioning scripts on the server and telling it to serve like the file in a directory somewhere when I would rather just, you know, hit other stuff and dynamically build the XML between stuff in the database, between stuff in sonar. Um, and I don't think it's worth it just because um, the XML API itself is not super complicated. Um, if I was trying to support every vendor out there, it'd be different, but I mainly just want to manage all the Microtik kit out there. So I just need, uh, you know, some of the XML API stuff that's necessary and the rest of it I don't really care that much about. So it's not worth trying to build something around Genie or something else like that when I can just own the system and build what I need as I need it. Hmm. Fair enough. I like it. it. Uh, it uh, and uh, for those of us that do not have the ability to do so, uh, <laughs> that's, that's too much for me. Uh I'm looking at just buying one from Fine uh, Fine Point, um, and uh, just roll with that. Hmm. Fair enough. To each their own. Nick uh, Nick likes doing stuff the hard way. I don't know if you guys have ever. It depends what it is. It depends <laughs> what it is. 
if it can't do 80% of what I need it to do, I mean, I'll, I'll just build something. But if, if it does like, you know, a small percentage of what I need it to and a bunch of stuff I don't need at all, then it's kind of like, what's the point when hmm. just do some packet captures, like look, look, go through the documentation and start tinkering around with it. So we'll see what it, what it ends up being. Um, it's just, I know that uh, most people I've encountered, I would say, that would be looking for a tool like this would not be able to spin up Genie and get it to do what they would need it to do. So a lot of people kind of spin it up and play with it and then just kind of toss it because it's hard to like hit the ground running and like start using it in a way that's that's really impactful or, or useful. So I know a lot of people right now that have have it installed but don't know what they're going to do with it and probably mm -hmm. won't ever do anything is further there, with it. Is there a commercial support option that you could call these guys in and they'll help you get it configured for your environment? Uh, I, I'd have to look. I'm not 100% sure. I've just dug through their source code a little bit. I haven't really looked at their... I know they've got a forum and a whole community, so I'm not sure if they do have commercial support or not, but uh, probably for installation potentially, but I don't know if they're going to help everybody integrate and do all kinds of stuff with it because it's open source. It's not like they have a ton of funding. I don't know. Sometimes that's uh, that's what keeps the project going. They do a spinoff company that uh, does the support piece and you know, I mean, I guess there's a lot of people out there that if they're big enough, they would plunk down 10 grand to have somebody come in, stand up the server, get it ready for their environment. And, you know, they might not pay for Genie, though. They might pay for one of the, the commercial ones like Mike. Oh. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, one thing you were mentioning was uh, firmware upgrades. And so I had on the list, I thought it was really cool. Zach is uh, really dove headfirst into the ansible stuff and he just put out a playbook for upgrading microtix which is really cool so i think you can just generically say update to like the latest version of the right train or specify a specific version it'll sftp it over to the device and uh, do the upgrade for you and maintain all that stuff so it's pretty cool so we got a link in the uh, show notes on that one if you guys are interested i haven't uh spun the wheels on that one yet i will probably need to update my cpes pretty soon and so maybe i'll maybe i'll give his a spin i mean i already have mine up and working but why not potentially break my whole environment no, <laughs> no it would be it would be i don't know it'd be a, a nice uh nice way of spinning the spinning the wheels you know giving it a try so something else i noticed in microtech is on the newest beta log well mike pointed out they they put out uh, a beta version, and then what was it like? Three hours later, they put out a another release, Mike, something like that. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was three, four, or five hours, something like that. It was like, <laughs> you know, and then like what was in the notes like didn't indicate like, oh hey, like we really screwed up. It was just like, oh here's something else. <laughs> uh, just a little bonus. They just want to give you a little extra. Uh, but what I noticed in there that I found interesting is it said. 100 gigabit LEDs added to Wimbox, and this was on a version 6 beta release. And so I was kind of surprised uh, that they're prepping, right? There's going to be some piece of equipment that's going to come out with a 100 gig interface with LEDs that's actually going to have V6 support. I just, for whatever reason in my brain, assumed anything that was going to have a 100 gig interface was going to be due in version 7. Does that surprise you guys at all? I know. I mean, that, that might mean that... Uh... Version 7 is not ready like they thought it was going to be. And so some stuff they might have to backport for now. I don't know. 
in my brain i was just assuming that it was going to be way too much work that they were probably going to pull in some brand new chipsets or something so you know why it, um, uh why backboard but i don't know it, uh about? well so i you know i mean before now no i would have not thought that but now that it's been said looking back it's like well you know they you know the CCR uh, 2004 does support 25 gig, and it actually has multiple 25 gig lanes. So you know, and 100 gig um, for most implementations is four 25 gig lanes. So is it that big of a stretch that if a chipset supports, you know, like that, you know, on the 2004, you know, supports two? Who's to say that a bigger one doesn't support more than two? You know, I mean, it's, you know, it could be the same chipset family, just a bigger, you know, a bigger version. Um, so, you know, with hindsight, it's like, well, yeah, I guess it kind of makes sense. You know, it could be for the bigger brother to the, two, the you know, to the 2004. Hmm. I have no idea. That would be an Andrew Thrift question. We should just make up something and pretend like he said it. <laughs> it, uh... Uh, Andrew Thrift has definitively stated that there's going to be an <laughs> RB750V7 uh, that will have a 100 gig port. Microtech, please correct us. RB750? 750. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> Booyah. Love the form factor. <laughs> Happy oh Octa or something. Jumping to the 8. So I was um, just in the same Microtech vein. Uh, I was troubleshooting a link flap issue earlier this week. So I really, I remember, I remember out in my MDU, I was having crazy problems. I changed out the core switch for a Cisco and everything's been great. Well, just for whatever reason, one of the interfaces, the IDFs decided it was going to flap a little bit and it air disabled its port. So I uh, turned on air disable recovery. I can't believe I forgot to do that to begin with. Uh, but, uh, that switch came back up. I don't know. It was just, I saw that there was like a reboot. So for whatever reason, they lost power out there. It came back up and it was just, yeah, every so often it was just, I mean, it would just hammer with link flaps. I looked at it and signal strength is great on both sides. Like receive signal strength is like holding very consistent. So to me, that says it's not necessarily a fiber issue like that. That really kind of lends away because it's it's right in the sweet spot, the signal strength, and it's indoors. It's inside a building, so it's not like it's, you know, like in the wind, like up on a pole where maybe there's like a, a fracture or something. I don't know. I just you know, just in my mind, it eliminates all that stuff. So, I uh, I went ahead and gave it another reboot, and then it's been like it came back up, flapped a couple times, like just it flapped once but it did it like six times, if that makes sense. One occurrence. Uh, and then it's been silent for like three days. So it's like everything's fine. So I was thinking I would just go and swap out the optics, right? 10 gig SFP pluses, single mode are cheap enough, you know, 20 bucks a pop. I could just throw the old ones away and put in some new ones. That's kind of where I met on it. I'm not sure what else. There's no errors showing up, right? Everything's clean, no CRCs. Signal strength is good. So I'm thinking I'm just going to change the optics. What do you guys think? Are they fiber store optics? Yeah, they're fiber store optics. 
I, I use a lot of fiber sore optics. So I'm not, I I'm use not a ton. I just know, like, <laughs> at this point, we have to we have to test them on the bench. So we'll actually, like, hook them up to a couple CCRs and do bandwidth tests over them and triple check because um, we've went out and done box deployments. And then, like, within, I don't know, six to eight hours, we start noticing there's errors on some modules hmm. that were brand new. So... Yeah, we we use a lot of them, but we've we've had a lot of issues recently. So now we're trying to use more like LACP and stuff just to make sure if there is a bad module, we don't lose like data. But yeah, when in doubt, just swap it. Well, yeah, you know what? And uh, the reason I didn't do like redundant ports on those switches before is because I was using uh, what was it the you know the Microtech core switch, and I think it only had what was it got like eight eight. SFP plus ports or something like that on it. So I didn't have enough to actually do redundancy to everybody. Well, now I've got a 48 port 10 gig switch in there, so I could easily do the redundant connectivity in there. So that might actually be an option. I don't know why I wouldn't do that now at this point. I've actually probably got enough spare optics sitting on the shelf where I could do that as well. Hmm. Yeah, I figured I would just change out those. You just, uh, you just pop a port off. And let it go out the other one that is working, and then you can go fix it without taking stuff off. Yeah, it's like a, it's a pain. I've got I got plenty of fiber infrastructure. Yeah. I ran uh, six count to each IDF, knowing that I only needed one pair over there just in case. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, it was you know just as cheap to do six count, so I just did that. Well, it wasn't just as cheap, but it was nearly as cheap, so I went ahead and did that. All right, I'll add that to my list. I'll add the redundancy, and then I'll uh, swap those optics at the same time. I've got a guy who's going to be in the area tomorrow, and he's got two optics in his pocket, so I'm going to get him to go ahead and swap, swap them and just chunk them in the trash. I don't even... I've done the, that before where you uh, you change out an optic that you think is bad, and it somehow ends up back in circulation. You don't know which one it is. And it goes back out, and then you have problems at a different site. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember now. Good times. Mysterious link flapping. So, Mikey, I know you love talking about Ubiquity. And you found sure. a little piece of news about them building a warehouse in Memphis, didn't you? I did. Um, I had seen some rumors, and it's been a little bit... Uh, it's been a little bit now, so I don't remember where I saw it initially, but I went and did some digging and came up with a an uh, application that they had to the local you know economic development group. And um, long story short, um, Ubiquity is building a new uh, distribution warehouse in the Memphis area. Um, I think they're getting a couple million dollars worth of uh, tax credits and whatnot for it. That's kind of um, wild. Yeah, but um, but the thing that irritated me on it is that it was mentioning, like it. Of course, it's been a couple of weeks now, so I don't remember exactly. But it, it, the theme of it was, you know, our retail customers need better distribution, and it's funny because they have a whole channel of distributors and resellers that they are starving with for inventory i mean they're also going into like 
two year plus warranties on everything that they're selling and the the prices are like either the same or some things I've seen slightly lower just because of stock shortages. Oh, wow. Like they're completely just going around the distributors. So that's kind so of what, so if you go through a distributor, is the warranty like a year or something or one year? I mean, yeah. It depends. Um some of them it's a little bit more, but a lot of it depends on what Ubiquity's uh like warranty process is. Like Microtick is a lot more difficult because usually the customer has to do a support ticket on their own and then you have to like give that support ticket to your distributor and then they will go to Microtick with that information. Some of them not so much, so that it's a little more lenient, but it's just kinda crazy that they are going so hard on distributing all their stuff, selling it on their store. Uh, it's just, it's kind of, kind of crazy. It, mm. uh, you know, and it's a big reversal from the ubiquity of before when it was like, I, I remember a time when like, they didn't care how old it was. They didn't care what the excuse was. They wanted everything back that you had of theirs that failed because they wanted to figure it out. Now they do whatever they can to get out of supporting you in any way. Um, and you know, and then they're you know, they're trying to avoid the channel, which is what I believe is propping them up in the first place. You know, the channel is the one providing people with you know, trained support cuz Ubiquity's not you know, the channel is the one that's providing you with, you know, meaningful training activities. You know, um, Ubiquity makes a PDF that says, here, teach this. But it's it's not really training. Um, you well, know, it's even crazier than that because, like, the distributors have to buy training kits from Ubiquity. And only certain distributors in the United States are allowed to purchase said kits. Hmm. So... There's a certain distributor that um, did not have access to buy the kits directly and had to buy it from another distributor. And it, and it comes with like the t-shirt and a blank certificate. And you can't just print your own. Like it ha you have to get it from somebody eventually through Ubiquity to even do the training in the first place. And all the, all the PDFs for the training is locked. You can't modify or do anything different. You have to go to the Ubiquity thing. So I'm wondering like, are they also eventually going to do their own training and cut that out as well? It's just kind of kind of bizarre considering their track record with even like um, Unify. You you were able to pay for paid support through Unify like in the UI, and now that's like gone. I think. So I don't I don't know. It's weird. I mean, what's the what's the consensus thought on this? Is it train wreck? I mean, I mean, it's, it's really it's really to boost the stock, right? I mean, it has to be like it's, it's got to be profit play. Right? Many, many multiples more work when you could just hand it off to the distributors like everybody else. Like I don't know why they would need to go direct. It, it um, and like you know, their whole play was you know we run a slim company, so you know we outsource all this stuff to our you know our fans and our distributors, and now they're cutting the nuts off their distributors. Well, I was thinking, you know, it's like, why not just pump all of your crap through Amazon? That way they deal with the logistics. They do, you know what I mean? The returns, they deal with all that stuff. Uh, it's really expensive. Yeah. But yeah like Amazon fulfillment cut. is incredibly expensive. You're losing profit. Yeah. You also I don't mean, like, get to stay in the warranty. Like if you sell through Amazon, you have to have Amazon's warranty. And they, they ask no questions if you need to return something or something gets claimed as stolen. Like 
you don't get to fight Amazon. You just, whatever warranty Amazon's going to give them or replacement, like, that's just what you have to do. Hmm. So. It, 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 um, now I do want to note that in some other jurisdictions, <laughs> um, th- like over in the EU, uh, there is a two or three or four year, I think it depends on different er- you know, areas and products, minimum for warranties. So there, the the ubiquity store, you know, we give you double the warranty, has no merit because the law trumps the warranty that you're offering in the first place. Yeah, I think I think Andrew Cox was telling me about Australia's um, like that. So there's like an assumed warrant, like there's an assumption of, and I might be, I'm pretty sure it was in Australia, but I, there's like this assumption that if you buy a TV, that TV should last on average x number of years and if it doesn't regardless of what your like warranty says you know there are the one you want to publish it's like you have to be you're like held liable for that or whatever so like if they think a tv should reasonably last eight years and it craps out on year seven then you're still on the hook for that thing you know based on kind of their standards which i think is it's interesting yeah i mean you know sure you know you know what would one expect something to last you know me I would expect any piece of electronics, absent external influences, you know, flooding, lightning, so on, to last, I mean, not forever, but 10 years, 20 years. You're still playing your Atari 2600? Never had one. Uh, (laughs) But some of my original rockets are still running. But, uh, you know, but it's, you know, it's electronic, you know, if, if, if there's not something spinning, I should just work forever. That's my expectation. Well, and be- I think a lot of stuff, your capacitors are probably what's going to go bad on it. And, you know, there's a uh, limited shelf life, depending on what you're using. Like, I know, I remember Microtech when they were first pumping out the RB750s or were the 750Gs maybe. That they had those bad caps in there, you remember? And they would last yeah. a year, maybe some change. Yeah. Especially if you heated those jokers up, they'd pop. You'd have to go it, in there uh, and replace them to get them back up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and then, you know, I remember Dell had the same thing, I think about the same time. You know, there was other PC manufacturers that were having, you know, massive capacitor issues. So, somebody over in China, uh, I guess they were drinking in the factory or something. I don't know. <laughs> Just turned out a bunch of garbage product. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, you've, uh, you've got your, uh, ubiquity licks in today, so you must be feeling pretty good. Uh, I do feel see. better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, something I want to say before I forget, there's two of them actually. Uh, one is it's Wisp America this week, right? Next week. Well, yeah. I guess uh, it's Saturday night now. So, yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Tuesday. This week. So I know Justin Wilson. I think he's going to be there all week. So it'd definitely be an opportunity to go say hi to that guy. And I think Ryan McAfee is going to be there. I can't remember. I it, can't um, remember. Who I else. remember the, it. Um, I think there was two or three or four other people uh, in the Slack that were going to be there at least one day. Nick, didn't you say you're going? I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. What days are you going to be there? Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. All right, there you go. Find Nick. Look for the pirate. 
It's the uh, pirate. Yeah. Pirate in training. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then uh, the does. other thing I was going to say is uh, Motor Rat Show, uh, very, very good friend of the show, uh, Nick Braulio and his podcast. They did the Dave Tot interview. And uh, that guy's pretty charming. He's pretty kooky. Uh, he's fun to listen to. And then I think the outro song was actually played by him. It was like um, mm-hmm. <laughs> a song about rockets launching. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty cool. So I would definitely encourage you guys to go check that one out. I actually put that one on 2x speed, and it was just about right for me. I don't know yeah, why. You, I've got to listen to stuff at high speed? speed now. Go ahead. I know you had a lot to say about Buffer Bloat. Did you uh, have a listen to that podcast? Uh, I haven't yet. Okay, you um, <laughs> but, but, um, information in there. I mean, but like, you know, having not listened to it, I think that my, I, I think my comments have been exaggerated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm, I'm making the comment because it's it seems like everyone uh, thinks that you're like so anti buffer bloat, like you're gonna go get a pitchfork and go hunt it down. Uh, it, I hear uh, Mike over here crawfishing. He's backing away. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think it just gets more play than it deserves. Um, <laughs> and the caveat that the opposite is a problem, but it doesn't get nearly as much play. Too small of buffers is disastrous as well. You know, tough switch. That that was its problem. Too small of buffers, and if you had mixed speeds, your experience was garbage. Um, you know, on the IX, you know, you have a CDN sl- slinging data at 100 gigs towards a customer that only has a 100 meg port. There's massive issues caused by too small a buffer. You're going to have yeah. a bad time, huh? Yeah. So what's this excessive jitter on router OS thing you put in here? Um... I haven't actually read it yet. I just clicked the link and saw all kinds of pretty graphs and tables. Um, <laughs> There's tons. Like their lab is like pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Like you know, seeing a lab of like, I mean, there's what appears to be like a couple dozen, like you know, 750s or something like that. And uh, you know, they're they're tracking jitter from one broader rest version to another. Hmm. Um, so they've they built a whole, I guess dozens is like exaggerating it now that I opened it again. Two no, I, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Let's see. Um, but then there's just all, all kinds of, uh, you know, ping graphs, just dozens and dozens of ping graphs in a big table of RoadRS version this and minimum latency, average latency, all kinds of different devices. Um, yeah. And they're tracking that stuff out for whatever reason. Yeah, I, like all kinds of versions. It's interesting. Um, like, I mean, like we got this link just a couple hours ago. Um, it says Microtech Router S 6.46.2 introduced a change that has led to excessive jitter. Problem persists to various degrees throughout. 646.3 to 647.1 versions, but appear to have been resolved in 647.2. Interesting. Yeah, man, they really went ham chasing this down. 
They're probably like a VoIP provider or something, and they're like, something's wrong with these routers. We need to get uh, to the ham top. radio nerds. Oh, even better. <laughs> even better or even worse? How would it's you like, <laughs> give, them, give them a vendetta? They're like, they're, we know there's something wrong. It's not our equipment. It's these routers. Which, which I Here's guess kind of circles back to your voice thing. You're talking about, you know, they're using DMR and P25 and all kinds of digital voice transmissions. So, you know, jitter probably is not too good for those. Yeah. Wow, there's so much data. Yeah, it's like, it's like I don't even know what to do with all this data. Like, I'm looking at it, it's like, wow, it's... Somebody else uh, look through all that, then tell me what's happening. Yeah, the summary uh, is, uh, yeah, there's some virtual <laughs> for sure. <laughs> That's bonkers. Well, those are people with a lot more time on their hands than me. It's interesting. You guys, uh, give it a read. Give us the evaluation. How about AS8003? Uh, what's going on with that one? So I saw some chatter on... Uh, Nanog, um, last month, I think it was. Um, and then, uh, since then I've seen a blog post by Kentick, a Washington Post article that I didn't read. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I figured that the, you know, since Kentick referenced it, uh, anything useful would be in the Kentick article. Hmm. Uh, um, and then someone else sent me a link. Um, actually, while we were filming just now, uh, to an article by AP News that seems to have a lot more technical information and chasing down, you know, who these organizations are and so on. Um, to circle back, uh, so the uh, U.S. Department of Defense um, has a somewhat unique connection to the Internet, um, given that they invented it. Um, more or less, <laughs> um, boiling it down to a few words. And, um, as such, they have a significant amount of IP space, uh, of which was not really advertised to the global internet. And most, uh, internet registries, if not all of them, uh, they don't actually re require you to publish or, or, you know, to announce your IP space to the the public internet you just have to prove you need it to be unique for some reason now obviously these guys just kept it you know ip space from from when they built it um again boiled down but um since january um three minutes before the transfer of power from trump to biden they started announcing their ip space out of as 8003. Um, 8003 goes back to a fairly nondescript company out of Florida. The AP News article was kind of running down to it. It seems like just a series of shell corporations. There's not a lot of things going on. Not, you know, people's names aren't listed anywhere. There's, you know, I see mention of a UPS store. Um, initially, it was thought it was all hijacked, but apparently a Pentagon official... You know, what started us all up again the past few days is a Pentagon official confirmed, yes, that's us. Yes, we're doing something new with it. Interesting. Um, 
I'm looking at a so, little chart here, and it's saying largest AS is by originated IPv4 addresses. This 8003 is now the largest. Yeah, like, at, you know, like 175 million addresses. Yeah, I mean, they went from nothing to the largest AS by IP space <laughs> in just a matter of two or three months because, you know, they were, you know, they were just were announcing what they had. And yeah, you know, now they're announcing 175 million IPs. Um, and so there's a lot of speculation as to why they're doing this. I mean, you know, they've said for, you know, cybersecurity operation research and stuff. Uh, so some people are speculating that it may now be the world's largest honeypot. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that, that would be, I mean, yeah. you know, I would, you know, I would think that any intelligent, you know, sophisticated attackers would know that and not target it. <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, they oh, could, they could launch some, uh, massive DDoS attacks from there as well, couldn't they? Yeah, it, uh, and just just the, just the amount of things you could do with that amount of IP space is just amazing. Um, but um, but yeah, so we'll see. You know, this is a developing story. Uh, so we'll see what uh, you know what happens with this over the next few weeks or months. Um, I mean, I would think that if it was not legitimate, when it came up on Nanog, if it wasn't legitimate, I I would assume it would have been swatted down immediately. I mean, you know, DOD is not going to let that happen if it's not okay. They had to know um, people would notice too, right? It's not something that you just kind of <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, casually do. I mean, you know, you could throw out a couple slash eights, um. But I mean, if it's 175 million, that's more than 10 slash eights. <laughs> <laughs> um, people are, yeah. I mean, it, you know, and then the dollar amount of that IP space, you know, as you got people stealing, you know, any IP space that they can to sell, and the DoD just says, "Here's 175 million of them that we're just not even using on the public internet." But here we go. Just want you to know we have them. Yeah. Um, oh, they're just now, flexing? Saw, is that what it is? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the biggest internet flex I ever saw. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, someone else was saying that, um, you know, kind of along the lines of, you know, it. you're not required to announce your IP space to the public internet to be, to, to warrant justification for it. Um not that they're held to those requirements, um, but, um, you know, it just requires that you need it to be globally unique. So, yeah, you know, if there's an IP address on a on a cruise missile or something, you know, I don't know, but, you know, if there is, you know, that's, I surely shouldn't be able to tell net to it. So, yeah, why route it? I mean, you know, why would it be routable? Um, you know, they probably have an immense need for internal IP space for all of, their things and I could see it being an issue if people are start announcing parts of their IP space you know hijacking it you know at least now it's all right you know here we're announcing it now 
So it's not just some fallow space that no one's going to notice. I mean, someone could still hijack it. You know, that's not going to stop it. But there's a bit more of a record now. And well, um, it would be interesting too if they got all of their address space on the like the asset lists, you know, so that it's valid in everybody's filters. And then, I don't know, say they decided to hit a country with, I don't know, like 350,000 slash 24s simultaneously, or, you know, a few million slash 24s simultaneously. It would technically be valid in their filters, right? And would go through. Sure. The first time, sure. yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, the yeah. First time. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't say the first time. I'd say probably the first dozen times because people don't learn. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, but so you know, you know, who knows what all they actually intend to do with it? But I mean, you know, yeah, you know, base Netflix I've seen in a while. It's hmm. interesting. <laughs> so uh, let's see what else do we have on the list there was a question a little while back about moonlighting uh, and do you allow your employees to moonlight what are your opinions on moonlighting and I actually read an article in the harder Harvard Business Review uh, yesterday or the day before that kind of talked about this very thing and so I thought it was sort of apropos you know I read that thing I found that intriguing and then the question had been presented. I was curious what you guys thought about moonlighting. Moonlighting be your employees have uh, other employment at the same time or, uh, you know, I don't know. It could be similar veins or it could be completely different. Like, what are your opinions on that stuff? I mean, if you're not infringing on intellectual property, you kind of can't do anything about it. And if it's not, if it's not um, causing issues with the primary job, then... There shouldn't be an issue. I mean, especially with things like, you know, installers. <clears throat> I hear this a lot about installers that are also doing like direct TV or whatever else on the side, like installing stuff that could technically be competitors. But I think most judges, if you were to try to pursue that, um, you can't really go after somebody that has what you could call like a trade skill. Like even if you have a non-compete, um, you can't really stop them from working in that type of job because that's like a skill that they have acquired. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty common, but I guess it depends. Like if you're too, really concerned about it, I, I saw some other comments that I agree with, like maybe pay, pay your people more so they don't have to seek out additional work. But, um, I don't see the issue with people doing what they need to do to make a little extra income. Hmm. Just don't For give sure. away the secrets, company secrets, if there are any. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Or anything that, you know, is, um, yeah, you know, like you said, proprietary to that company, they do something a very specific way. You can't just take that and start, you know, doing it everywhere else. You know, right. I mean, you can't take uh, the KFC recipe and start cooking your own chicken on the side. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's obviously bad form and stuff like that. But what I was curious about is because uh, I've I've talked to uh, some employers or employees or whatever, you know, just people in general, and some employers don't want you doing anything else. And I think I saw somebody say in the comments that in like their state, if you, if you make less than a hundred grand, you can't like put any language about, you know, like uh, uh, non-compete or whatever in there. It's like, no moonlighting, I guess, uh, because you know, that counts as 
you know, they, you know, I guess just having to make ends meet, you know, put all that stuff together. Um, I do, I do, uh, yeah, it's, it's a sticky one for me because, um, I've always had a bunch of jobs simultaneously. <laughs> like there's very, very, very few times in my life where I've just had like a single thing going on. And I think a lot of it is, uh, has to do with me and kind of, uh, I just fear of like, if I lose my job, what am I going to do? So if I have kind of like these multiple things going on, it, it yeah. helps me, but also there's been parts of my life where I've gotten stagnant in my day job and I've gotten bored. And so to push myself, I've had to find stuff outside of that, you know, just to keep me kind of, you know, keep that part of my brain engaged. Um, and honestly, that's what kept me at the employer. Cause if I was stuck there and I couldn't go outside and do anything else and, uh, you know, I, I, I would have left. And honestly, I probably would have been better served had I left. I don't know. I can't say that cause I'm happy where I am now. Um, but this uh, Harvard Business Review article was talking about this guy who worked in the banking industry. He did it for a really long time, but he uh, he also loved music, and so he wanted to be a music producer. So he just started doing it on the side, and he started using his own money to do it because he knew you know he didn't have any cred or anything like that. So it was the only way anybody was going to let him do it. So he just started taking on free stuff, you know. And um, uh, subsequently, now he still has like he has people seek him out now he's actually won like several grammys or something for his music production uh but he doesn't take money for it because it like you know it sort of fulfills a part of him um uh that he would never get you know working because i think he's like some c level at like a fortune 500 now or whatever and uh he was saying that not only does he think everybody um should do it or everybody should be allowed to do it, but they actually, you know, should take that upon themselves to kind of find fulfillment in other places. And he says that, you know, one job would feed the other, right? So whenever he's schmoozing clients at his, uh, you know, at his day job, you know, the fortune 500 gig, you know, like trying to close a deal or whatever, he would bring them to some of his production sessions, right. And let them kind of sit in the booth with him, you know, behind the scenes, you know, get to meet these musicians and stuff, you know, so that they could see him outside of work. You know, I've learned a lot of business happens outside the office, you know, especially in big companies and corporations. And so it's really interesting how he was talking about, you'll, you'll have opportunities, you'll learn skills that are going to help you in all of the jobs that you're doing, especially like your main gig, it's really going to help you. And I was thinking that is so super true for me. Because, um, like doing this podcast has helped me learn to talk to people and be able to vamp really quickly and come up with stuff and, uh, ask questions and, uh, the LinkedIn learning, you know, the Linda stuff that's taught me to be paced and how to teach people and, uh, you know, just kind of look at the world a different way and be more confident. So it definitely, all of those things make me so much more capable at what I'm doing. And there's often been times where that was the only reason I could pay my rent. You know, I could pay my mortgage just because I had that extra set of income. And so I've had jobs, uh, one in particular that threatened to fire me because I was moonlighting. And it was funny because they started reviewing all the things I was doing and they're like, well, we want you to do this one and this one because we think that makes you look, um, you know, more, um, what is it, like yeah. uh, a trusted advisor or whatever in this industry. Uh, but we don't want you to do this one and this one. 
And they couldn't really give me a good reason why. And ultimately, I think the reason was because they were afraid I was just going to be successful at this other thing and then leave. Um, but they also said, well, you know, um, well, they told me the story about how uh, this guy that was a research scientist wanted to do something that was like so completely different, almost like he wanted to like make soap or something. You know what I mean? And they told him no, because what if we decide we want to start making soap? You know what I mean? And I was like, we might just seriously, might this is, this is the rationale. So ever do it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is insanity. So, uh, I eventually left that place, but it was also to me that it felt really insulting. It felt so yeah. short sighted. You know what I mean? It's like, look at me as a person that has put so much into this place. You know, and I'm only just expanding myself and building myself and make myself better for you guys as well. And um, I guess some people can't see beyond the end of their nose when it comes to that stuff. So, but I know that's not for everybody, right? I'm sure there's some people where that absolutely, you know, they're the kind of person that, you know, would just sit on company time and, and do a completely other job and, you know, collect a check or whatever. Um, oh, sure. Oh, sure. It's a, and, it's a, and so... I think a lot of that is, you know, do you have the capacity, the discipline to maintain, you know, separation of duties? You know, if you are expected to put in 40 hours a week at place A and, you know, say they have a schedule, you know, you have to then make sure that like you know you don't even like leave work early to go do one of your other jobs because now that is infringing on the first one it's like you know right. yes it's it's not the same thing but you have now shift you know you know uh not done something that you could have done for the first company because you were doing your second thing you know if you're you know, you know if you are doing direct tv you know installs on the side you know you have to make sure that you don't use your wisp installation drill or drill bits or things like that like you know it's not just that you know should you have the freedom to but you then have the responsibility to then ensure that you can do it separately um or if not that everything else is above board hey hey you know i'm you know i'm gonna rent this or you know you you know there can be no hiding of things that might be mixing of interests, you know, and yeah, don't sell a lot of direct to your wisp install that you're doing during your day job. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Like, stuff That's like ridiculous. That. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, that feels like common sense, but I think to a lot of people that may not be that. common sense. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, people do that and they, they're like, I, I didn't know. It's like, come on. Yeah. yeah. I, I never told you you couldn't, show up to a customer's house naked either but you you somehow understood that that wasn't a good idea you know, come on it, it um yeah and so then you know or it's like you know wearing company a you know uniform while you're doing work for company b it's like oh <laughs> yeah. you know it's just like you know you know and it's maybe not a whole uniform but you know maybe you're a guy that wears a hat and you've got a hat from company a you know, you're from your Wisp and you're out doing direct TV installs um, you know, with your company A hat on. And then the 
customer you're installing DirecTV for calls up company A, like, hey, you know, you were here installing <laughs> DirecTV. You know, if you, if you want the trust to do things separate, you have to yeah. have the responsibility of keeping it separate. Yeah, um, yeah I totally understand that. Yeah, or like people that will wear their company uniform to the bar and just get sloppy drunk. It's like, <laughs> yeah. come on, man. You know what I mean? It's like when you have that uniform on your representation of the company, you right. know what I mean? You're like speaking on behalf. And like you said, Mike, if you show up and do work wearing that uniform, then you're representing that company as you're doing that stuff. So that's, yeah, it's definitely not okay. It, um, and you know, you know, I don't, so a, I, you know, I'm in a position where it's like, okay, my one company, it's just me. I'm the only one. So, I have no one to irritate. <laughs> um, other company, it is, um, it's actually, its ownership is comprised of companies. There's not an individual that has a share. So then it's like, okay, you know, it, and it's all of people that already have multiple hats. So it's, you know, mixing of things is assumed. Um, and then, you know, the third company that I'm working with is, uh, you know, it's a lot more traditional in that respect. Um, and I would think that, um, you know, just, you know, speaking off the top of my head here, you know, I would think that, uh, you know, I would want to know, you know, kind of feeding off of the, you know, you know pay your employee more so they won't moonlight. You know, I'd like to find out what it is that, drove them to do it did they need to make more money did they need to embrace some other complementary skill set you know if they're going to make soap no i'm not going to make soap but if you're moving into you know doing uh i'm just video surveillance or something like that it's like well maybe we would do that and maybe you could head that division maybe we would pay you more to then do our video surveillance, you know, division. So you get that, you know, the itch scratched of doing something different. And we get that you're still ours. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, finding out what, what the reason is for it. You know, now if it's delivering pizzas, then. Right. You know, well, yeah. like, like you have, um, you just talked about a couple of lives you have. So you own your own Wisp, and yet you've been employed by another company that sells internet service, and does in the IT same geographic work. area. I know, and yet <laughs> wow. they can trust you to separate church and state there, right? Yeah, yet, yeah. Um, so you know, it actually they possible. probably benefit more than I would because of my connections and my experience and my networking of that. So actually, you know. You know, in that case, the company who is not, you know, me is the one benefiting from the fact that I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, I was trying to think of some fancy phrase, but I, I can't. So, you know, I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm not bound to one place, you know, they're benefiting yeah. from the fact that I'm not bound to one place. You know, they actually, you know, as you're talking about, you know, kind of a, you know, you know, one of your former employers over at, you know, you know, they like the idea that you did X and Y, you know, 
this guy that I work for, you know, he talks about, hey, you know, you know, Mike does this with this podcast, and Mike does this, and Mike, you know, Mike has been to all these things and does all this stuff. You know, that's that's the talent that we have. Um, so it's, you know, it's good for them that I have more than one hat. It does. Um, and I think it, it, if it's growing you as a person, right, it's increasing your skill set, it's going to make you more capable in all assets of your life, right? So or facets of your life, as long as you don't let one thing, right, distract from, you know, your bread and butter, you know, and that kind of, it's like, um, you know, I'm an Ansible SSA at Red Hat. That doesn't mean I'm going to start going and doing Ansible consulting. Like that would be madness. Yeah. The company I work for sells Ansible consulting. Why would I, why would I do that? Uh, I, to be honest with you, I have, I'm not just drinking the Kool-Aid, brother. I'm I'm swimming in it every day. Like I'm out I'm out doing laps in the backyard in the the Red Hat Kool-Aid. It's like an awesome place to work for. Uh, so there is nothing. I would I would do nothing to jeopardize that position over there. It's like the best job ever. It it's um something I just thought of um airing now on I believe the History Channel. Um which I'm sure it's available online or something, is a show called um, The Food That Built America. And it's about a bunch of, you know, people that, that, that pioneered different things that have become staples. Um, and not just American food, but food worldwide, you know. You know, you know, whether it's something new entirely or a new process or taking something that was an ultra luxury and making it common. And so many of these instances, there's a story of somebody who was doing something for somebody else and that somebody else was a, a stick in the mud or, um, didn't have you know, a vision. Just, yeah. You know, um, you know, one yeah. was, uh, Campbell's Campbell's soup had bought, uh, Swanson, the people that do the TV dinners and Swanson had the largest by far market share in the uh, TV dinner space. And the lady that kind of pioneered some of that, you know, went to, you know, their contact at Swanson. It was like, Hey, you know, I need funding to, you know, Stouffer's is working on this, you know, microwave dinner line. And I think we need to compete with that. Um, and, you know, they, they didn't have the vision. Yeah. Of, you know, we, you know, microwaves aren't a thing. Now, I mean, it's it's just in select cases. No, we're not going to do that. Hmm. Um, and then ultimately, Stouffer's won that space because they had the product available. They didn't have the lead time, and it was, you know, that you know that lady went. She had the vision. She had you know, let's do this, and the company wouldn't let her. Now she didn't go do it on her own, but you know, there are other stories where something like that did happen, where right, you know right. somebody left to go do their own company because they felt constrained where they were. So, you know, it's not just a money thing. It's, you know, what is the itch that you have and how can we help you scratch it so that you don't go scratch it somewhere else? Yeah. It makes me think of like, um, Kevin Smith, the director is friends with, uh, Matt Damon and, uh, Ben Affleck. And they were like, dude, why don't you, why don't you write a movie so we can get like an Oscar or something? And he goes, if it's that easy, why don't you guys go do it yourselves? And then they went and wrote Goodwill Hunting. So sometimes you just gotta, <laughs> you just gotta go and do the thing, which uh, which makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I uh, I guess it's a mixed bag because 
uh, when you paint the picture of the guy doing installs, you know, and he's trying to install right to those. Yeah, it's like I, there's definitely a conflict of interest there. I can definitely see that. And yeah, well, I mean, the idea of uh, conflict of interest, I guess, comes into moonlighting as well. So like if you meet somebody through the company, they know you through that company and you have a negative interaction, you know, on some kind of side job you're doing for them. I could see how that would reflect poorly on the, the main company. So I, I, I mean, I can kind of see both sides of it. Just so long as you, uh, what is it? You don't poop where you eat. You know, you just kind of keep all that stuff separate. I, you know, I'm less inclined to be concerned about it. And uh, honestly, like the guys I've had working for me in the past that would do some moonlighting on the side, you know, it's, it's basically don't do it with anybody that you meet here, you know, keep it outside. And those guys learned and they grew and they became better at what they were doing because of it. So I don't know. I've always seen a lot of positive come out of it, but I definitely, man, I definitely see where you're coming from on some of that stuff. That, uh, and so how you can, and you know, you may be, uh, you know, now looking at all this, like, okay, you know, I, I do see there's pros and cons. How do you manage it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. If, you know, if one of you have figured out the perfect policy that's enforceable and addresses all the concerns, let us know. Yeah. Because I imagine well, everybody else wants that policy. Well, it's just like, um, it's just like with the LinkedIn learning stuff. I'm re revamping one of my courses tomorrow. I'm probably going to finish doing the bulk of the recording, uh, cause it's like due early May. Um, but that was one of the things they liked and they definitely encouraged me to keep doing, uh, because right. It just, it looks good for me, which in turn looks good for them because, you know, they're putting me in front of customers to be some expert or whatever. And so the better, the more exposure you get in that realm, just and they put you in advertisements. You so we're going to see a LinkedIn learning uh, Red Hat course. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's where it gets into that uh, uh, interesting territory material. where I'm not sure I want to, to venture uh, <laughs> over there. Uh, I don't know, man. I don't know if there's like a, an Ansible networking one on there. That would be maybe interesting. But see, then we also have some training stuff. So... That would definitely be something I would have to run up the flagpole first before I try to do any of that stuff. So. Every three minutes, every five minutes, uh, commercial paid support is available for Ansible. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it is. <laughs> no, that's, uh, believe it or not, that's one of the things I push. Um, these big Fortune 500 companies, that's like uh, some of them are behind the gun on something, you know, whatever it happens to be. You know, if it's like uh, they've got this exponential growth or we've got this compliance problem or whatever it's like yeah uh, usually the engineers that i'm talking to are already stretched you know and it's like ah it's tough for us to get in here and do that well it's like well then why don't you pay this expert who can do it in a fraction of the time have yeah. the templates already up and working for you and and support you know, it for you yeah well yeah i mean yeah. there's that too but just you know to have somebody um basically bait the fishing pole drive you out there in the boat and then cast it for you and just hand you the pole. It's like, yeah, I bet you I'm going to catch a fish pretty fast. And then I saw how it worked the first time. I bet I can pick up yeah. and move pretty quick based on this. But if you don't oh, yeah. know, it's like, Hey, you could just, you got a contact now. 
Like yeah. you're not you're not by yourself anymore on this one product at least. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty huge. Yeah, something happens. Like you got a number to call now. Oh, for sure, man. For sure. Everybody <laughs> needs a, a Nick Arellano in their life. They can just holler at. <sighs> holler at me. <laughs> holler at you, boy. Um, I know it's um, you know, I definitely see, you know do see that like. If you were to ask me five years ago about you know paying somebody for you know implementation services, I'd be like, "Are you insane?" <laughs> and now I'm like, "Who can we pay to get this done?" <laughs> well, if you're yeah. paying for commercial support, like, it's not like you have to go. Okay, well, let me let me work around my schedule. Like maybe sometime next month. It's like now if you're paying for a commercial support contract, it's like no, you've got like a, a lot of companies. You have a, a representative that's for your account. You need help. You're stuck. Something happens. No problem. Like you're you're paying for the support. So, you know, even when I do consulting, for most people, I try to find, even if it's open source, something that has some kind of commercial support offering because it's invaluable. Like if I'm not available, it's like, hey, just just call this number. They'll take care of it. They'll help you better than I can because it's their product. So everything should always have a lifeline. If you want to cheap out on that, well, you know. It's like what we talked about before with security. How much downtime can you afford, and uh, how complicated is the tool? Like, if if you're going to start struggling, do you want to try to rush through getting a support contract last minute, or do you want to get familiar with somebody and and know how the process is going to work so it's less stressful? Like, it's up to you, but um, it's a it's a night and day difference when you have that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, too simple stuff. Like, um, we're moving to a new major revision number on this open source software. And being able to make that migration on your own can be terrifying mm -hmm. sometimes. Or, um, you know, you just know that you've lost a whole week of your life is going to be gone when we make this, you know. Or if you've got commercial support, guess what? Yeah. I could actually let this guy do it for me. Mikey's done a really old software version migration to current a few times recently, haven't you? <laughs> I, I have had to do some of that. Um and some things are still stuck on old because there's <laughs> there's no good way out. There's custom code. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope we hire the guy that made it so that then he just does it. Hey, <laughs> move this to a new platform. I'm telling awesome. you, we all need a Nick Arellano. <laughs> Dude, there's, there's so much better than me out there, too. Yeah, but they're far less I'm priority. Not the golden <laughs> less priority. Yeah good times all right well we are uh we are at about the normal mark when we stick a fork in it is there any uh pressing things you guys need to just say anything you got to get out of there uh one or two sentences um if all anybody right. has has experienced office 365 shared mailboxes go missing hmm. let me know because i can't figure it out google can't <laughs> figure it out microsoft uh, 365 chat, you know, forum. You know, the forum's like, uh, put in a ticket. I can't put in a ticket because there's no option there to put in a ticket. My reseller says, uh, I don't know. So if any of you experienced that, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Call me now. <laughs> in that case, you don't have to go to patreon.com for slash Blair Swift to reach out to me. You may reach out to me directly at... <laughs> I'm easy to find. Just At Mike's OnlyFans site. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. All right, Mike. If you want people to get a hold of you out on the internet, how would you uh, have them do that? Well, if you can uh, help me solve this Office 365 problem, um, you may reach me at uh, Facebook and Twitter and many other places. Um, if you Google my name and Illinois, you'll you'll probably find lots of things out there, ways to find me. Um, for anything else, go to patreon.com forward slash the Miller's Wisp and become a sponsor and talk to me in Slack. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Nick Arellano with the complicated spelling there. How would you have people get a hold of you out on the internet? You could email me at nick.a at hey.com or you can go to patreon slash the Brothers Wisp. And once you uh, become a patron and you get into the Slack channel, you can go into announcements and I'll have a, a code word on my website that you can type in there and some guy will private message you and get you in contact with me. So become a patron. It's very, it just sounds very like uh, spycraft. Very... Oh, it is. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of excitement you get if you're in the, in the Slack group. The kind of excitement you're going to get with this guy. <laughs> oh, have mercy. It uh, maybe I should have that. Maybe I should have you know. Here's some short URL to go to, and we'll send you a Scavenger text. Hunt to find Mike. And then, <laughs> and then this text is a link to a uh, to an Android app, and then the Android app downloads this, and then takes a picture of your face, and then it sends it over to here, and then you scan this QR code that it generates, and maybe I can mm. go through all that. And then it turns out Mike's really just a deep fake. He's never been real. Oh man. Yeah. Are you? Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you want to find me, I'm Greg at Gregsoul.com where I very regularly blog. Uh let's see what else. Uh the uh why am I podcast, why am I pod.com. That's been going. Uh, I've got another one popping out tomorrow. It's this guy John Wilson. Lighter, you. He's a he's a I know, dude. I love it. Uh he's an actor I found from an ATT commercial and hunted him down. And then he, <laughs> he talked to me. So Dude, I'm I'm like uh, I'm like on full stalker mode over here. Uh, it's uh, it's getting uncomfortable examining myself through that lens. Uh, no, I I like, really have a lot I of fun. <laughs> also, you can find me at patreoncom wisp. You pop in there, throw me a DM, or at me in any of those uh, fun little channels, and I'm usually pretty quick to answer. If you guys have any questions or comments, please fire away, Mikey, Nick. Thank you guys for joining today. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. So then we click stop. And then we come over here. And we click.